Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Heavenly Father, let's ask you now that your spirit will lead and direct in every aspect of what you've placed in my heart. Asking you, Lord, that you will be glorified, you will be exalted. And even as we recall what took place a hundred years ago and subsequently then, we can still look up in hope that you are sovereign and you're in full command of every situation. doesn't matter how desperate and dire it becomes. And so, Lord, just asking you that I will just be a vessel of your truth. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ask Brother Jason if you would come forward and just read the relevant passages that I'm going to share with you today. So, Jason. The first reading is taken from Micah 4, verses 1 to 5. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, Neither shall they learn war any more, but they shall sit. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God for ever and ever. The second reading is taken from Psalm forty-six. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. The third and final reading is from John 15. Verses 9 to 16. To 17, sorry. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, 
that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. I'd just like to say before I actually go into the message, uh, as um, Pastor Rob has um, given me what you could say, the unofficial title, um, and I humbly accept it as Elder Statesman. And... Um, one of the privileges that goes with that is that you're able to actually, um, at times, extend blessing and honor to other people. And I've been here part of the Calvary um, Chapel South London Fellowship since 2006. And um, I've been truly blessed by the leadership. And if I would sum it up in one word about the leadership of the, um, what I call, you can either call them the three degrees or the OJs, or I'm more fittingly like to call them the Mighty Diamonds. So, you know, these are some of my favorite groups um, over the years. And um, the one thing that I give God thanks for, above all for them, is that they were able to lead with integrity, something which, you know, I will say I never take for granted, and something which I sadly oftentimes have not seen in other leaders, inside church and outside church. But I really give God thanks for their lives and give thanks that, yes, they're not perfect. And leading a church is not by any stretch of any imagination quite an easy task. But really give God thanks that the three of you have actually led this fellowship, right, through so many changes, right? And at this time when the Lord has decided to move Pastor Patrick to Dulwich, right, we can look back and say, God, you know, thank you that your servants have actually led according to your precepts, and that has really had an impact on our life. So, you know, give God thanks, you know, Pastor Ephraim, Pastor Rob, right? Right, okay, let's get on now to looking at um, Remembrance Sunday. And you may ask yourself the question, why should Christians, um, what is the biblical basis? You know, Calvary Chapel here in South London, we like to um, regard ourselves as very sort of um, biblical focus. And if someone came and said to you, okay, can you in any shape or form qualify biblically um, remembering what took place in the Great War and in subsequent wars? And I don't know how many of you know of the uh, Maccabean Revolt. Well, or more immediately, you, I'm sure you're aware of um, the triumphant entry into Jerusalem when Jesus came in and what's known um, as Palm Sunday. Now, when Jesus came in on Palm Sunday, if you recall, the people were there waving palm leaves and saying, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus, you know, quite rightly accepted their praise and their adulation. But what were the reasons why the people were standing there to actually welcome and to celebrate Jesus' arrival? 
You may mentally think that they were actually there because of who Jesus said he was and what the reputation Jesus had actually built up in terms of his messianic right, role. But in fact, it wasn't quite so. The reason why the people had gathered there and was welcoming Jesus was something which had taken place about 200 years previously when the Hellenists, or the Greeks as we know them, were in power, were in authority in Jerusalem. There was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And you won't find this in your kind of um, traditional 66 books, but you'll find the account in um, the Jerusalem Bible, the one that the Catholics use, in the account of the Maccabees. There's two books called the first and second Maccabee. And what had taken place was during this Hellenistic occupation of Jerusalem, a man named, as I mentioned before, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the then leader, he hated everything about the Jews to such an extent that he thought, right, apart from actually physically oppressing them, what else could I do that would really, really devalue these people? And he actually took, uh, right, he took a pig and took it into the temple and sacrificed it. And he knew that that would be the ultimate insult to the Jews, right? In the holiest of holies, he actually did this. And, um, but the Jews thought, you know, this is enough. We'd rather die than allow this to go unchallenged. And a man, grew up, a man rose up named Judas Maccabee and his sons. And they actually, through the help of God, successfully managed to overcome Antiochus Epiphanes and drive them out, drove them out of the temple and drove them out of Jerusalem. And from that time onwards, the Jews, the Jewish people, would celebrate his victory. So when Jesus is coming in to the city, they were welcoming him in that spirit. They actually thought that Jesus was going to come and drive out the Romans and return Israel to its former glory. But as we know, the story was quite different. Jesus came. He didn't go as a conqueror of the Romans, but he went to become and give his life a ransom for many. So that, you could say, is a biblical basis for why we commemorate those who had actually made the sacrifice during the war. Now, some of you are historians, may recall what actually took place approximately 100 years ago. We had here the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and um, there was a very um, immodest archduke named Ferdinand. And on the 28th of June, he was murdered by an um, anarchist named Graville's Princip. And um, as a result of that, the Serbians nation, right, were held responsible by the Austro-Hungarians. And they immediately demanded reparation as well as an apology, everything. But there had been this tension been building up between the Austro-Hungarians and the Serbians for a good while. So it just really reached a culmination in the, in the assassination of the, um, the Archduke. The Serbians' refusal to comply with the Austro-Hungarian demands, then led to a standoff. 
and then a gradual build-up towards hostility. What then transpired then next was that the Russians, who were long-time allies of the Serbians, said, well, if Serbia's attack, we will actually come to their defense. Right. Austria-Hungary also had, you could say, some very powerful allies. The Germans. The Germans said to the Russians, well, if you attack Austria-Hungary, we will, right, come in defense on their side. Right. So you must be wondering now, for those of you who don't know the story, I'm not, right, how did the British came to be involved? France then says, right, if Russia is attacked, because as you know, Russia, France and um, the Germans have been long historical enemies for various reasons, which we won't go into today, right? If Russia is attacked, we will side on the side of the Russians. At the time, Germany was the most powerful military force in the whole of Europe. They said, okay, we're going to show who is the bad men around here, Right? And we will then have to, if we have to split our military, right, base, we will fight an east and west. We will take on you guys, and we will take, we take on you guys in the east, the Russians, right? I will take on you guys in the French. You haven't got the military might to get. However, the Germans decide, right, for us to get to France we're going to have to pass to a small country, neutral country at the time, named Belgium. And they sent out a message to the British and says, right, mm, we know you have got a treaty with the Belgians. Um, can you kind of stay out of this? You know, because after all, we're historical cousins, right? <laughs> right? We just want to just actually um, travel through Belgium and give these French... A good bloody nose, right? Because they're, after all, your historical enemies, right? Yeah? The House of Commons debated how could we allow Germany to actually just ride roughshod over a weak, small country like Belgium. And on the 4th of August, the ultimatum came from the British Majesty's, his Majesty's government, that if you actually send one soldier into Belgium, this is what Her Majesty's right, military will do. And as we know, the rest is a tragic history. Right, now, as I look around the room, I can see that most of you, most of us here, trace our roots to the Caribbean and Africa. And you may well be asking the question, wasn't the Great War solely a European affair? Mm. Yeah? And one of the things that sometimes saddens me and disappoints me is when you look around at Memorial Day, you do not see that many people of color wearing, right? Yeah, <laughs> they're popular wearing anything in remembrance of it. Right? And I wonder if they actually understood as much as they need to about the history. Now, let me see a show of hands. Those with Sierra Leonean background. Yeah? Right, okay. Right. Nigerian. Ghanaian. Indian. 
Right. Guyanese, Eastern Caribbean, Jamaican. Right, okay. Right. Well, at first, right, there was rejection. You know, there was, um, you know, many people from across the Commonwealth or the then known empire who volunteered, who offered their service to defend king and country. At first, there was rejection on the part of the British High Command, more so due to this widespread pseudo-scientific ideas attributing inferiority to people of color across the globe at the time. Um, one of the things I studied quite extensively was the whole um, history of um, high Q, and um, some of you may know this was a quite often this was something that started the late 19th century, and then reached its kind of, um, you know, highest profile towards the middle of the um, 20th century. But there was these ideas that somehow tried to classify, categorize people's human worth according to what was measured by these IQ tests, right? So there was this, this widespread scientific assumption. And at first, the British High Command rejected the offer from people from across the Commonwealth, from off the Empire, to actually fight on the side of the British. However, King George V intervened and soldiers of colour from across the empire were allowed to join the ranks of the Allied forces. Interestingly, both Pastor Robs and my grandfather fought in the Great War, and perhaps I'm sure others here, your relatives may well have done. But I, when they came to Britain, sadly, due to the deep-rooted prejudice principally found amongst the officer class, many soldiers of color were treated in a very harsh and demeaning way. In the British-led campaign, there was a one very notable Jamaican named Norman Manley, very, who went on to become a very distinguished King's Council, um, one of the top defense lawyers in the world. And he came here just and took up a board just not far away in Deptford. And he recounted in his biography how he was quite often treated by not so much the, what we would just describe as the working class people, but more so the middle and the upper classes. Um, you know, I won't repeat some of the references that was made to him, but somebody who was a very well-learned man, he was a Rhodes Scholar, went to Oxford and, you know, this Rhodes Scholarship and was as known in Jamaica as being a very, very, very masterful in English language. And some of his accounts, you know, was really, really sad to read. And so it was for many of the soldiers who came here from the Commonwealth, soldiers of colour. Many of them were treated abysmally, not only by those within the army, but also within sometimes the wider society. But yet they still serve king and country. They serve certain empire with dignity, and, yeah, with loyalty. Now, let me go back now. Let's see a show of hands again of those of Ghanaian heritage. Right. Does the name Alaji Grunshi means anything to any of you? Guess not. Right. There is Alaji Grunshi of the Gold Coast Regiment who on the 12th of August, 1914, fired the first shot for Britain in the First World War. Now, many people would have thought that the First World War, the Great War, started 
in Europe. It didn't. In fact, it actually started in Africa because the Germans had, was in occupation or had colonialized southwest Africa. And if any of you had actually known what took place in southwest Africa, you'll understand why they were able to actually carry out all those kind of um, genocide in the concentration camp because, in fact, many of the early experiments took place actually in southwest Africa. The Germans actually, that's where they actually used to pilot a lot of their studies about what was the extent of, that, of human threshold, human tolerance. Appalling history, what took place. And they also occupied a hero called Stogoland. And, but this particular soldier right, knew that something was happening in and around the areas the Germans had occupied. And also the Gold Coast Regiment were very, 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 very important, very strategically important right, to the British because if the Germans and their allies were allowed right, to actually expand their operations in Africa, it's quite likely that the outcome of the First World War and the Second World War could have been different because a great deal of the resources and material that was necessary to maintain a campaign in Europe actually came from Africa. Germans knew this, and that's why the Germans were really seeking to actually take up greater control in Africa. But this soldier fired actually the first shot from the Allies' perspective, from the British perspective, in the First World War. And just to kind of um, reinforce the point, in case people might think so that I, it's one of these kind of fads, it was actually reported in the Times in 1940. Technologies. <laughs> right, anyway, just read very quickly what the Times reported in 1940. It was in the Gold Coast that the first shot was fired by a British soldier in the last war. It came from a rifle carried by a dusky warrior whose name was Sergeant Alaji Grunchy and whose face bore the tribal scars of a people familiar only to the traveller who had penetrated into the hot savannah land north of the colony of Ashanti. Sergeant Grunchy was a member of the Gold Coast Regiment, West African Frontier Force, and was one of the contingent of troops which marched into the then German dependency of Togoland shortly after the war was declared. There was little show of resistance to this invasion, but at Lome, some miles from the capital, a few Germans ensconced in a factory, opened fire on a British patrol. This fire was promptly returned by Sergeant Grunchy, and the first bullet to leave his rifle, although neither Alanji nor any of his companions realized at the time, signaled the opening of four years of bitter hostilities in the course of which the empire was to lose more than one million dead. During that war, hundreds of Gold Coast men followed Sergeant Grunchy on active service West and East Africa. So there you have it. That is one for this you know, historical fact. 
So from Grunch's rifle came the first shot from the British. And there was this kind of um, notion, this unfounded notion, that this great war would eventually lead to the end of all wars. Some hope. Now let's return back to the passage in Micah 4, verse 1 to 5. I haven't... Technology. Now, in this situation, which Micah found himself, you have this small nation of Israel, and it's surrounded by larger nations and empires. There were in place disingenuous leaders who disregarded truth and social justice. That is a sign that whether leaders are really worth electing and worth retaining. You've just got to look at their track record around social justice, integrity, right, and managing the truth. These leaders, quite oftentimes, would invite counsellors whom they knew to be wrong, but were telling them what they wanted to hear. I'm sure you're more familiar with the term spin doctors. And yes, you know, uh, this is not the only account. I'm sure you can read about it several times in the Bible and also in many uh, places where you suddenly get these spin doctors, right, who comes in and then actually um, advise, inform and counsel leaders what to say and how to say it. In their eyes, it's seen as damage limitation. But in fact, it's really there to mislead the people, to, to pacify them. So they, in essence, want to be telling the people what they wanted to hear. And religious observation just became an external practice. There was no inner connection with God. There was no sincerity. So it took a brave person like Micah to speak the truth to those in power, in spite of what was happening, because the situation was you know, getting worse by the day. And catastrophe was close at hand. So in this concept, Micah, the prophet, was ministering. You know, he was ministering over 700 years ago. This was 700 years before, sorry, 700 years before the birth of Christ. Make you wonder, you know, we sometimes are looking for Christ coming and um, we wonder it seems to be long. Just imagine that Micah, right, he is actually... Right, ministering 700 years in advance. He wouldn't have known that Jesus was not to come for another 700 years. But yet, he knew that it, the important thing was to be faithful to God. Right? Not to be counting the days so much, but to be faithful to God. So this took place. This situation took place. This scenario took place 700 years before the birth of Christ. Where the northern kingdom of Israel had already been fallen, had fallen before the overwhelming might of the Assyrians. But Micah discouraged, you know, the, Jewish, the Judah, Judah the south, the southern kingdom, was still intact. Yeah, it's as if God had given it an extended period of grace. And, but Micah spoke now to Judah and to the kings, right? Unlike the false prophets and the weak priests who just basically went along with the agenda that the king and the leadership required. He asserted that 
Disregard for God and his ways had led to social injustice and it would lead to humiliating defeat in the face of a foreign enemy. So he was forewarning them, as God always does. Right? And even for us as individuals, before something happened, God forewarns us. God will do everything to seek to turn us away. But the question is, do we listen? Do we respond? Or do we just, in our own sinful mind, and in our own egoistic way, just press on? with our own desire and with our own purpose, and then end up having to pay the price. Micah wasn't naive. He knew how things work in a fallen world, even then. Without urgent and radical repentance, if the people did not turn and repent, there would be an invasion. A mighty enemy would completely overtake small, (coughs) vulnerable nation of Israel. But yet, in spite of the overwhelming odds, Micah had hope. For he said in that same passage, nation will not take up sword against nation. They will never again be trained for war. And this would be helped by God sending his chosen king to bring him the reign of peace. If you just quickly turn over to our Micah 5, Chapter 2, you see here that very, very well-known prophecy. But from you, Bethlehem, in Ephrathah, small as you are among Judah's clan, from you will come a king for me over Israel, one whose origins are far back in the past, in ancient times. So Micah knew, right, that God was preparing his plan for his son, for his salvation, for his reign of peace, to descend enough. Christ. So with the Messiah, we might say, would come the reign of peace. But first of all, that peace had to be in the hearts of man, in the hearts of man and woman, right? Before it could actually extend into the community, to the family, to the nation, and into the world. First of all, must come, must reign. Jesus' peace must first reign in our hearts. So Micah still had hope, and he had hope because The Messiah was yet to come. In moving on, we see, we read the account in the New Testament, where we're reminded that when the Prince of Peace eventually came to this fallen world, the ultimate sacrifice was demanded of him. He actually laid down his life for the ransom for many. And remember that quote, even some, I think in some places, if you go around the world, in some warm memorial, you will see the words. Although it never fittingly applied from human to human, it's about God's love, but Jesus. But in essence, it's still used, it. there's no greater love than this, that someone should lay down his life for his friend. It's interesting that sometimes I have, um, what you could say, dialogues or debates with people who are either anti-Christian, and they would somehow try to rubbish the scripture. So I sometimes would pull out a passage and say, okay, now re- tell me, you've heard this saying before, about there is no greater love than this, that someone should lay down his life for his friend. Can you tell me what part of it you find offensive? Can you tell me what part of it you find is illogical? Can you find me one part of it that is in your mind? Can you find me any part that fits in with your perspective of the scripture? And I've yet to find anybody in about 40 years who have ever found one. 
you know, it goes to the very heart of love. It goes to demonstrate is when somebody is willing to lay down that their life for the benefit of others. And Jesus himself laid down his life. So as I said, you can go around the world and you sometimes will see on these war memorials this very statement, which is what, after all, happens in wars where people are called to lay down their lives to pay the ultimate sacrifice. Now, in the face of evil, history will demonstrate that good people are sometimes called upon to die to counter the force of evil. This sometimes causes monarchs, political leaders, church congregations and countries, countless others, to stop and reflect over these next few days that over 100 years ago, or approximately 100 years ago, nations marched into a war with their eyes wide open. They knew, right? It's not a case that it just happened, right, impulsively, on the spur of the moment. There had been a built-up. You know, if, if one was to look at what took place prior to 1914, there had been this kind of one built up in hostilities, right? Yeah. In Europe, right? There had been this, what they call phony wars taking place between nations, right? There was, and they knew, right? The politicians knew, the leaders knew, right? Yeah. What was going to happen? But what they could not imagine was the unprecedented levels of suffering and pain that would ensue. Again, it's very much like us, even as individuals, right? We know what we want, or we think we know what we want, we know what we desire, but somehow our minds, we shut our minds off to the consequences, the after effect. And here we had it. I mean, just an idea, how many people you think actually died in the Great War? Any idea? Anyone like to shout at a figure? Britain alone lost a million. But right across Europe, when you take into account the numbers, it was somewhere in the regions of, I believe, 20 million. And you're likely to be 20 million casualties. People who survived, but who bore the physical and mental scars for the rest of their life. For instance, I had Two of my grandfathers and grand great uncle fought in the war. Um, one thing I remembered about my grandfather who survived till I was born and then was able to actually converse with him. He never spoke about the war. Never. Never spoke about the war. And my grandmother said the same thing, that ever since he came back, he came back as a changed man. And you can get him in conversation on almost any other subject, but about the war. And it was only, I think, maybe about three, four years that I fully was able to appreciate and comprehend this, was when the last British soldier who fought in the First World War died. He was about 106, 110, I can't quite remember. And his family members were also said that he never spoke about the war. And it was only through some kind of um, further inquiry I realized why. That these men were so traumatized by the experience that their personal defenses required them to suppress, to shut down all the memories. And it's only, I mean, just reading it, you can actually get a sense of what took place. Where in one day, I think something in the region of, I think, half a million men died. Right? That's how terrible it was. 
So, under no stretch of medicine, please ever think that, okay, it's something that's like what we see in um, some of these movies. Right? War is a terrible thing. Right? And its casualties far extend beyond the military. But yet 19 years since the birth of the Prince of Peace and after his world-saving sacrifice, the world still seemed more fallen than ever. So since the Great War, the Second World War, <laughs> the irony is there has been more wars fought around the world. There hasn't been any race to peace. Why? Because we as fallen creatures, right, cannot achieve, right, the high standard of God. And recently, I was in discussion with a colleague of mine at work. He's from Germany. And, you know, we, we talk from time to time. And one of the recent conversations was about the European Union. And he was really, really worried about the European Union, Britain coming out of the European Union and the European Union fracturing. And I said, Carl, tell me why. He said, well, in the Second World War, Germany lost 10 million people. And... He said he's really worried that if the European Union was to fracture and Britain was to pull, we would probably go back to the same thing that led to the Second World War. He says, he, in his view, he felt that the European Union, in many ways, more than anything else, had maintained the peace in Europe. Right? And thought that was an interesting perspective. And he says, even today in Germany, right, they still haven't quite recovered, right, from the depth of loss nearly 60 years ago. So even in war, you find that ordinary people, genuinely keen to do the right thing, to serve king, country, and even God, to fight for a world in which war would be no more. These ordinary people were amongst those who made the ultimate sacrifice. Many have debated, you know, the causes and wisdom, justice and consequences of the First World War. But as we pause together, we don't need to join into those debates. I think they've become a little bit futile. But we do well to be reminded by both Micah and the supreme example of Christ himself, of some hard truths and that's the only foundation of hope for fallen world is in Jesus Christ. Nation will not take up sword against nation. They will not again be trained for war. That can only come through the reign of Jesus Christ. It is a hope. Yes, it is a hope. Michael knew that the world is fallen. He knew about kingdoms and empires and the human failings that lead to war. But his ultimate confidence was in God, not in man. And one day, the reign of peace would come. Until then, in a fallen world, good people and good nations need to be courageous and be prepared to stand up against evil. So, we don't resign ourselves in a fatalistic way to say, well, right, because we're on the march of prophetic, you know, yeah, aims, we therefore need to sit back and not, actually. We still need to, as Christians, to be the light of the world. Right? We need to be there, to speak out against injustice, wherever it's happening, today, around the world. You know, what really touches my heart on a daily basis, and I give God thanks for it, is the persecution of believers. 
Just being persecuted for being a follower of Jesus Christ. And we as Christians, both from a spiritual angle and both from a principle of justice, need to be counted. We need to have our voices heard. You need to sign those petitions. You need to be telling your neighbours that these things are happening and there are people who are innocently suffering. We need to always be the ones at the forefront of standing against injustice. This has been the history of Christianity as much as anything else. In this country alone, if we want to go back to the 19th century, where people lived in squalor, children as young as seven or eight was deliberately undernourished so that they would be slim enough to go up to the chimneys and clean them out. And the mortality rate, whew, right? But yet it was Christian men and women like you and me who says, no, 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 right? This is wrong. How can a civilized society allow this to be happening to their children? William Booth founded the Salvation Army in East London where young women as young as 14 were being you know, sent out to sell their bodies just to put enough food in their family's mouth to go on for one day. Again, another man who came right, in the power of God and challenged the society and says, no, this is wrong. So we as Christians, we need to speak out when evil is aboard, when injustice is around. A century on, and the world still struggle to comprehend the level and intensity of human suffering. And sometimes, yes, even good people, and this I know is controversial, have to use evil means to counter even greater evil. And if you want your biblical context for it, if you recall... When the children of Israel went into the land of Canaan, what did God say to them? Wipe them out. No, I had difficulties. I struggled with that passage for a very long time. Until um, yeah, a friend drew to my attention and used an analogy from the world of medicine and said, well, it's not simply that God was unloving, that God was not compassionate, God was not caring. It's simply that. It's like an infection. You've got to somehow isolate it. If someone's an infection, to from it from spreading, you've got to isolate that person. And in a way, what had taken place, because the Canaanites had reached that level of depravity, it was necessary for them to be wiped off the face of the earth so that the rest of humanity, the children of Israel, who were supposed to be the light of the world, would not be infected. If God had allowed them to survive, the children of Israel themselves would have also taken on much of their depravity. And what hope would then there be for the rest of the world? Another example is in the Second World War. How many of you have heard of a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Right, yeah. A very, very right, solid Christian evangelist in the middle of the 20th century and he was executed in 1944 and the reason why he was executed was because he took part in the plot 
to assassinate Hitler, as you know, didn't succeed. It took a lot of soul searching for him to get to that place, but he realized, he says, right, you know, if you don't get rid of this evil, then this greater evil would persist. So sometimes Christians find themselves in those situations. And a similar thing again in the war. So today we honor our armed forces who courageously risk and do this, you know, and have given the sacrifice, have made themselves available as a sacrifice for us. We scan the globe today and it would be foolish to conclude that the world is less fallen in 2014 than it was in 1914. But Micah and Christ himself encourage in us the hope that comes from God and which prevents us falling into despair despite the world's failings. The God who is described by the psalmist as our refuge, the Lord of hosts, is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. The same God who raised Christ from the dead will in the end have his way. The world will be turned into his kingdom. And as Micah knew over 2,700 years ago, this will be a kingdom of peace. Nation will not take up sword against nation. They will never again be trained for war. This is not a vain cry of somebody that is crazy. But the hope of those who, in full knowledge of the fallen nature of this world, and possibly even in the heat of battle itself, will keep faith with God and serve his will. So as we mark the centenary of the outbreak of the First World War, we do well to remember that it is this faith in Christ that gives us hope for the world and gives us hope for peace. Amen. So we just pray. Closing. Heavenly Father, we know that you sent the Prince of Peace. And so often, even when we read in the scripture, we see that in Jesus encountering people who were troubled, his first word was fear not. And even as he left his disciples, he said, my peace I give unto you, not as the world give. And so, Lord, we are so grateful, we are so appreciative that you have placed this peace in our hearts and you've made it available to any who would give their heart and lives to you. And Lord, on this Remembrance Sunday, yes, Lord, remember those who died. Remember those who were wounded. Remember those who suffered great loss. But Lord, we know that you are the light of the world. We know that you are our ultimate hope for mankind. And Lord, on this Remembrance Sunday, Lord, we just pray, Lord, that you still will be glorified in spite of all the troubles that is going on across the world. Troubles in Syria, trouble in Iraq, trouble in diverse places, even trouble in places we don't even hear about. But Lord, we know that you are sovereign and that your purpose will be accomplished and that one day, that glorious day, that your peace will reign supreme right across the nation. And so we ask in Jesus' name.
Amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.